0: you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. If you're not sure where Ephesians is, uh, don't start in Genesis. Go to the back, start in Revelation, and head left, and you'll find the letter of Ephesians, and we will be in chapter 5. If you were to wander through certain stores, or maybe do a quick search on something like Pinterest. It would be easy to find uh, signs that spell out house rules. You'll discover various items in these places of things you can hang on your wall to communicate how people are expected to live and act in your particular home. Some of them are specific, some of them are generic, some of them are funny. Uh, You'll find lists like this, something that says, in our house, We say please and thank you, we do our best, we stay positive, we count our blessings, we forgive and forget, we laugh at ourselves, we use kind words, we love one another. Maybe you've seen signs like that. Or you might come across this popular one which I saw advertised as something for a roommate, uh, which was house rules, if you open it, close it. If you turn it on, turn it off. If you unlock it, lock it. If you break it, repair it. If you can't fix it, call in someone who can. If you borrow it, return it. If you use it, take care of it. If you make a mess, clean it up. If you move it, put it back. If it belongs to someone else and you want to use it, get permission. If you don't know how to operate it, leave it alone. If it doesn't concern you, don't mess with it. (laughs) Now, whether or not you you like these lists or you find them helpful, their existence reveals what we all innately know, namely that it's not easy to live with other people. In fact, our, our closest Relationships are often the ones that cause the most friction and conflict in our lives, and therefore they're the ones that we need the most guidance on if we're going to live in harmony with one another. As we continue to walk through the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, we find in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, what many people see as an ancient household code. Uh, In other words, it's instruction on how we are to live in our core relationships as Christians. These household household codes were not unique to Christianity, but we find here that Christianity is unique in the way that it changes our relationships and how we relate to one another, which means that the items that are found here are a little different than the signs that you're going to find on Etsy. Uh, in these verses, Paul addresses three key relationships within a first century home. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and masters and servants. And he helps us to see how our new identity as followers of Jesus should change and shape the way that we relate to one another in these three core relationships. We are again reminded that to be a Christian is to have every part of our lives changed, including the way that we relate to those around us, which means that a Christian household or simply a Christian within a household should look different than those that are outside of Christ. These verses therefore cause us to ask, do we allow or are we allowing who we are in Christ to shape how we live with one another? In fact, these instructions are theologically and grammatically tied back to Ephesians 5.18 and the call to be filled with the Spirit. You remember that command in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, what Paul is describing here in, in Ephesians 5.22-6.9 through is what Spirit-filled household relationships will look like. If we are yielded to Christ, if we are yielded to his Holy Spirit, then what is described in these verses is what's going to be true in our homes. The grammar of the passage is interesting. Maybe some of you think that's a boring sentence right off the bat, but the grammar is interesting because you may, you may remember uh, that we said all of the instructions of verses 19 through 21 are, are linked to being filled with the Spirit. So as we are filled with the Spirit we encourage one another you remember we we worship god we are marked by gratitude and we humbly submit to one another in loving service and then paul continues with this theme of submission into his introduction into his instruction on marriage in verse 22 in fact if you look at it in the original language the main verb in that first phrase wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, that, that word submit is not there in verse 22. It's assumed uh, from verse 21. So let's begin actually by, by reading that verse, verse 21, and then the rest of the instruction that's give, given to husbands and wives through the end of chapter 5. Look at God's word, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. As we are filled with the Spirit, we are, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 gives us this ideal to aspire to, and this is our big idea for today. It's this. A spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through humble submission and sacrificial love. A spirit-filled marriage. Remember, we're saying that if we are filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, then this is, what, this is how he changes our relationship. So a spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel. How? Through humble submission and sacrificial love. Now, we can look at that and we can say that it's beautiful in some ways, that that reality, that a spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through humble submission and sacrificial love. But it's also highly controversial. <laughs> These words right off the bat in verse 22 are not words that we're used to hearing in our culture. The Verses 22 through 24, Four are a minefield of controversy in our day. And there are a number of reasons for this controversy that we need to discuss. In fact, there's enough work for us to do unpacking this command of submission that we'll actually just plan to be back here uh, next Sunday so that we can get to some of the more practical applications of this passage. So if we don't get as deep into the text as you want to, know that we're planning to do that next week. But the task for today, I think, is that we need to hack away some of the weeds so that we can see the beauty that's here, so that we can understand what's, what's being stated. Uh, and if you're here today and instruction on marriage seems like it's not relevant to you, then I hope that you'll actually walk away with a picture of what a spirit-filled marriage is that would then fill you with a, a love for what God has done in Christ, because that's what marriage is supposed to reflect to the world. So before we think through the difficulties surrounding verse 22 and some of the other contexts, let's simply be clear that, that this teaching here, specifically that wives are to be subject to their husbands, is not an anomaly. It's not simply found here in Ephesians 5. In a highly parallel passage, Paul says in Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the lord he also says in titus 2 5 that among other things the young women in the church should be taught by the older women older women to be quote submissive to their own husbands and it's not just paul the apostle peter writes in 1 peter 3:1 that wives are to be subject to their own husbands all this to say that this teaching on husbands and wives is repeated throughout the new testament as are the other instructions regarding uh, authority in relation to children and parents and masters and servants so we can't just dismiss these verses as some sort of an anomaly as we try to understand the and as we try to understand the source of the controversy of this passage we're, we're first met with the fact that there is in all of us a skepticism of authority let's make that our first point as we think about the controversy around these verses a skepticism of authority whether or not you think it was justified the pandemic that we all just went through and the overflow of it has revealed once again that we as human beings have a natural skepticism and level of uncertainty when it comes to those that are placed in authority over us that's a long way of saying that we don't like people telling us what to do and we don't need a pandemic to reveal this do we life is filled with various levels of authority and we often don't want to listen to them students don't like when teachers tell them what to do Citizens don't like when the government tells them what to do. Employees don't like when their bosses tell them what to do. And yet, God has designed his world in a way that reveals that authority is actually not a bad thing, but it's a blessing, and it's part of a well-ordered society and world. As we think about authority within marriage, our natural skepticism probably arises to some degree. The idea that a husband has some kind of leadership role within a marriage that's greater than the wife is is one that we might bristle at. And in fact, we have the fall of Genesis 3 to thank for our distaste of authority within marriage. Part of the curse in Genesis is stated to Eve like this, Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. An interesting phrase, and if we just anecdotally look around, a quick examination of people reveals that men are often passive, shunning their responsibilities, while women are ready and willing to lead. And it would seem that some of this role reversal is actually a result of the way that sin has turned God's good world and his good plan upside down. And yet, yet while we can acknowledge the sinful roots of our natural skepticism of authority, we should also note that the sins of those in authority have also contributed to our skepticism. In other words, this skepticism for authority is actually not ill-founded we have too often seen those with god-given authority abuse their power for their own good and for the detriment of those that are under them and this includes within marriage doesn't it husbands have abused their authority treating their wives in shameful and sinful ways men have used this passage as a weapon to harm and to suppress women in a way it was never intended to be used. So our skepticism of authority is a result of sin. It's a result of our sinful nature. We, we don't want to listen to any authority, authority, and those in authority misuse that authority such that we don't want to submit to them. Therefore, the sin in us and the sin done to us causes us to recoil a bit at most authority, including this command in Ephesians 5, 22, for wives to submit to their own husbands. The controversy around submission is found in a skepticism of authority, but secondly, it's found in what we'll call a question of culture. A question of culture. As we read the Scriptures, we do so recognizing that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, they are applicable to all believers through all generations and in all cultures. However, with that said, it would be foolish to not consider the context into which the biblical author is writing. S.M. Bao, in his commentary, opened my mind to this reality in a new way this week. Here's a few things that he pointed out regarding the social and the legal position of women in the first century to whom the letter of Ephesians was addressed. And it's just, it's like a whole different world. Uh, first, nearly all of the wives that Paul was writing to would have been married for the first time between the ages of 12 to 17, most of them being about 14 years old when they were first married. Uh, Next, we should note that men typically married later, roughly between the ages of 18 to 30, with some evidence suggesting that a third of men were were one to three decades older than their wives. Uh, It's also helpful to know that women had significant health issues as a result of pregnancy and sometimes anemia that that would come because of pregnancy or because of of poor diet uh, therefore they would live only into their mid 30s on average in the first century and finally we need to remember that marriages were arranged and they were focused not on love but on the union of two families often for reasons of social status this is the environment that Paul is writing into and giving instruction on marriage to and now now consider that for nearly every one of those realities, it is completely different in our day and age. The age of marriage is completely different. The age gap within marriage is completely different. Life expectancy of women is completely different. And even motivation for marriage within our culture is completely different. All of this means that, that a wife submitting to her husband will look vastly different in our day and age than it did in Paul's. Another cultural difference is found actually in the way that many of the ways that women, not to mention children and servants, were oppressed in the past and that these things have been rightly corrected. John Stott says this of these social changes. He says, quote, Our initial reaction to these liberation movements, I do not hesitate to say, should be one of positive welcome. For we have to agree that women in many cultures have been exploited being treated like servants in their own home, that children have often been suppressed and squashed, and that workers have been unjustly treated, not to mention the appalling injustices and barbarities of slavery and the slave trade. Stock goes on. He says, We who name Christ's name need to acknowledge with shame that we ourselves have often acquiesced to the status quo and so helped to perpetuate some forms of human oppression, instead of being in the vanguard of those seeking social change. Nothing in the paragraphs we are about to study is inconsistent with the true liberation of human beings from all humiliation, exploitation, and oppression. On the contrary, to whom do women, children, and workers chiefly owe their liberation? Is it not to Jesus Christ? However we specifically apply Ephesians 5.22 and the verses that follow, we, sh- we would do well to see what Stott is saying, namely that, that the goal of this verse was never to oppress women. And we should therefore be careful to think about how our applications of this passage can lead to actually to true freedom and to liberation, the kind that Jesus has brought about for all people rather than bringing any kind of humili- humiliation or exploitation on any person. I could read you a lot of commentaries. I could read you a lot of Stott. Uh, a lot of bow. And they, but hopefully these, what we've seen helps us realize that this question of culture, both the, the culture into which Paul was writing and the culture that we find ourselves in, that it's helpful to consider these things as we think about the application of these verses and what that will look like for us. Having said all that about culture, let's also say that while we need to understand this passage in its cultural context, we have to also be clear that the commands of it, specifically the call for wives to submit to their own husbands, that there, it has to, there has to be a God-honoring, life-giving, dignifying application to that command. This has to be true because the command is rooted not in first century culture. It's rooted in creation. And not simply in creation, but it's rooted in the gospel itself. Notice, that, that Paul says the husband's place as head of the wife is parallel to what? It's par- well, parallel to Christ's place as head and savior of the church. And the submission of the wife is done as to the Lord. The spirit-filled follower of Jesus longs to submit to Christ's authority. And part of that for the wife involves submitting to her husband. Verse 24 also says that as the church submits to Christ, so too the wife submit to her husband. This command is rooted in the gospel. And now we've come face to face with a third source of the controversy around this passage of scripture, which is this. It's a misunderstanding of submission. A misunderstanding of submission. You know, some words are a bit magnetic in a negative way. They, they pick up pieces of meaning without even realizing it. So you may you may not like the word submit at all. And you might not like it for no real reason, it just has some negativity attached to it in your mind. Can I be totally honest? I struggle a little bit with this word. And I don't think that's because I don't want to obey God's word, but because it's a word that has a lot of baggage attached to it. So what does submission mean here in this passage? Let's try to get an answer, and I'll give you a few statements to get past our misunderstanding of submission. I think I've got four of them. First, there's a difference between submit and obey. There's a difference between submit and obey. Again, we can note that this household code includes instruction not only for husbands and wives, but also for parents and children and masters and servants. And if we read this passage in context, what we notice is that while wives are called to submit to their husbands, the command is not, wives, obey your husbands. That's the command in 6.1 for children, and that's the command in 6.5 for servants. So let's make a distinction between those two things. In fact, when we come to the summary of this instruction in verse 33, we see that Paul says wives are also to respect their husbands. As we will see, that respect doesn't come from the husband's displays of strong authority, but from his acts of selfless love. Remember that the submission of the wife is to be modeled after the church's submission to Christ, who is her head and and Savior. The church doesn't submit to Christ in some kind of slavish fear, but in willing love. Why? Because of Christ's love. We love him because he first loved us, and it's the love of the husband that leads the wife to respect him. I think part of what this means is that the husband... The Christian husband doesn't say to his wife things like this. Hey, you need to submit to me. Or, hey, you need to respect me. Brothers, let's, let's be honest with each other. If you feel the need to say those kinds of things to your wife, if I feel that need, even in some sort of a sarcastic manner, it's likely that it says more about us than it does about our wives. In contrast, a spirit-filled husband loves and serves his wife in such a way that she has no issue with submitting to his loving leadership or respecting his role because she's thoroughly convinced of his love in the same way that we, we willingly submit to Christ because we are so convinced of his love for us and that he is seeking our good. And just to be clear, this doesn't mean that a husband has no need to respect his wife in the same way that it doesn't, that it doesn't mean that a wife doesn't need to love her husband in fact, what begins to emerge as we look at this passage as a whole it is a picture of marriage that is filled actually just with a whole bunch of mutual self-sacrifice for the good of each other and the glory of God. So regarding our misunderstandings of submission, we see that there's a difference between submit and obey. And secondly, we see that submission does not imply inferiority or inequality, Submission does not imply inferiority or inequality. Uh, And herein, I think, is one of the dangers of any authority, Uh, namely that those in leadership begin to think that those they are called to lead are of less value than they are. We're going to have to tackle this when we get to, to the instructions about servants and masters and have to think about the fact that that authority in history had caused people to look at others as less human than others. Authority can cause us to to value someone less, but this can't be what Paul is teaching. And we know that without even leaving the book of Ephesians. Remember how clear Paul has been about the fact that the gospel makes us all one in Christ. Part of the glory of what God has done in Christ is seen in the fact that in him, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female female, because we are all one in Christ. So what does this mean? It means that misogyny and chauvinism are anti-gospel. Jokes at the expense of women, jokes that disparage women, have no place on the tongue of a Christian, not to mention the wrongly held belief that men are somehow superior to women. Nor is the other extreme acceptable either, whereby men are disparaged or dismissed or shoved to the side. For those in Christ, there is a radical equality between men and women as image bearers of God and children of our Heavenly Father. Seeing this, it may be helpful to say that the difference Paul is calling us to is not one of status or worth, but of role within marriage. The difference is not, is not one of status or worth, it's of role within marriage. And what is interesting to me is, is how Paul doesn't spell out exactly what that difference of role is going to look like in a marriage. He gives these command commands wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But he doesn't tell us exactly what that's going to look like in every marriage. I think that's likely because it's going to be different in every marriage. This can be the problem, actually, as we think about culturally-defined gender roles. When we start to say, this is what wives do and this is what husbands do, we get into danger there because Paul doesn't give those kind of specifics. I'll give you a for instance. My wife takes care of the bills in our house. I do the dishes. Why? Because she has a degree in accounting and finance. And because I worked at Chick-fil-A and Starbucks and I know my way around a three-compartment sink. So, Your marriage might look different, right? But you might have different responsibilities. And in a thousand different ways, our marriages can look different. But the danger is to fall into this trap of saying, this is what men do, and this is what women do. And if you don't do that, then you're not fulfilling your roles within marriage. That's not what he's talking about here. The roles in marriage are wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. And that plays out in a thousand different ways, Throughout all the thousands of years of, of, of history, throughout all of the cultures in this world, and even just throughout all of the marriages in this room, there is no standard for exactly what roles need to be, how these roles need to be fulfilled. This is the standard here it's this self sacrificial love. So I hope that makes sense. Um, I, I don't think that we need to think about these culturally defined roles. Rather, I think Paul is purposely vague in specific application because if at the heart of our marriages there are two people who desire to selflessly give themselves to one another, the other things are going to shake out in a way that dignifies both members of the marriage. Roles will be defined not by specific responsibilities, but rather by attitudes of humility and love. Well... Let's move on to a third statement. Uh, we've said that um, as, as far as understanding misunderstanding submission, there's a difference between submit and obey. Uh, we just were thinking about how the f- submission does not imply inferiority or inequality. Third, let's say this, the realm of submission is the marriage relationship. The realm, the place where submission is happening is in the marriage relationship. We'll be real brief on this because it should be obvious. The command is not women submit to men, right? That should be pretty clear. It's it's the call for wives to submit to their own husbands. What it means is that this covenant relationship of marriage should be a safe place for a wife to experience something close to the love of Christ who has laid down his life for his bride, the church. Again, this reality pushes against the more ugly expressions of masculinity, whereby men seem to think that women in every, every area of life should be subservient to them. This is not at all what Paul is teaching. And the church of Jesus Christ should welcome moves away from this attitude. And we should continue to promote the equality of women and men in our culture. The realm of submission is within the marriage relationship. A fourth and final thought then to get us to a right understanding of submission. And it's one that we've stated implicitly throughout this sermon, it's this, a wife submits as her husband sacrificially loves her. A wife submits as her husband sacrificially loves her. What this means, I think, is that our understanding of submission is radically informed by the call on the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. In fact, this is the instruction, uh, it's this instruction to husbands that Paul seems to focus more heavily on. If I could say it from a Bible study standpoint, this is the danger of just reading uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 and not recognizing the other commands that go along with us. We have to understand the instruction to husbands and wives as mutually uh, informing one another. As we think about the, this command, and we note Paul's emphasis on it, the command for husbands to love their wives, it makes me wonder, actually. I, I, I can't be sure about this, but it makes me wonder if, if this command would have fallen on the ears of those in the first century in the same way that the command wives submit to your own husbands falls on our ears. In other words, in in a world where love was not necessarily the primary motivator for marriage and in which a husband was potentially much more distant from his wife in, in a variety of ways, could it be that the call for husbands to sacrificially love their wives, that that was a shocking thing in the first century? That, In other words, that, that the submission of the wife was just sort of assumed. But then tying that submission to sacrificial love, that's what set apart Christian marriage from everything else. That the reason that a wife submitted was because her husband sacrificially loved her. I can't know for sure, but it's something to think about. Uh, of course, the sacrificial love being spoken of here is, is always radical. It's radical in every culture because it's modeled after Jesus. Jesus who loved his own to the very end. Jesus who stooped to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus who submitted to the will of the Father in the garden. Jesus who loved his bride, the church, all the way until death on the cross. And so as we consider this passage as a whole, we're we're brought actually back to our big idea A spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through humble submission and sacrificial love. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And part of the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remind us of the truth of the gospel. In some ways, we are even reenacting the the breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood so that we remember that we find life in and through him. Well, what if marriage could do the same thing? What if marriage could, could do the same thing in some ways that the Lord's Supper does? What if the commands for submission and love had the deeper purpose of a moment-by-moment display of what God has done for us in Christ? Tim Keller says that the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. I love that simple statement, the purpose of marriage is gospel reenactment. Is that how we think about our marriages? As we continue to think on these verses next week, I think we're going to see even more clearly that the the purpose of a spirit-filled marriage goes beyond all of the purposes that we might come up with for marriage on our own, apart from the gospel. Because the purpose of marriage goes goes beyond self-fulfillment It goes beyond social advancement. It goes beyond procreation and the building of a family. It goes right actually to the reason for which God created the world and the reason that he sent Christ to redeem the world after it was broken by sin. Because for the glory of God, a spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel. That's what we're called to do in our marriages. Our our marriages are called to paint a picture of the love of Jesus who laid down his life for his bride, the church, so that he might purify her. When we were dead in our sins, Jesus came to live and to die and to rise again. When we were without strength, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, becoming the substitute sacrifice for our sins so that we could be saved from the penalty of death and free to serve our Savior in love and devotion. As we take the bread and the cup together, we we actually announce that our hope is in Christ alone, and we remind one another that this reality is what drives and shapes every part of our lives, including our marriages. I wonder if, as we take the Lord's Supper, if we might even ask, are our marriages cross-shaped? Are we living together in such a way that we display the beauty of the gospel to one another? That we display the beauty of the gospel to our children? That our marriage shows what the gospel looks like to our fellow believers? That someone could actually look at the way we live as husbands and wives, someone in the world who knows nothing of the gospel, and they could slowly start to understand what it means that Jesus came to save us. I hope that that's true. I think that that's the ultimate purpose is that our, our marriages are gospel reenactments. And we're going to continue to think about this uh, next Sunday. But for now, we get the joy and the privilege of of, this beautiful uh, ordinance that Christ has given us that is a reminder of what God has done for us in Christ. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and I, if you have put your faith in Christ alone, your, your hope is... For salvation is rooted in what Jesus has done, not in what you've done in good works, but in what Christ has done completely on the cross through his death and burial and resurrection. If that's true of you and you have been baptized as a follower of Jesus, announcing to the world that that this is where your identity is, then I want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. If that's not true of you, then I'd ask that you just let the bread and the cup pass I want to give us a moment of silence to uh, reflect on God's word, to prepare our hearts, to take the Lord's Supper. And then Andrea is going to come and help me pass the bread and the cup. So let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray uh, and we'll take the bread and the cup together. Father, we love you because you have first loved us and we are so convinced of your love through the cross. Lord, he who spared not his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Lord, you have given us your very son for our salvation. How will you not also give us everything else that we need? Thank you for the beauty of of the good news of the gospel, for the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ that shapes who we are and how we live, even within our core relationships. And now, Lord, as we remember your broken body and your shed blood, we ask that you would be with us, that you would help us to remember you well. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.